this week, I had in mind where I was going to go with this passage. And so the title that I came up with was Standing Up to Death. And that's a fun title, depending on how you say it. You can either stand up to death, or you can just stand up to death. Well, either way, I think it works for this passage. But as I worked through this sermon this week, that wasn't where I ended up. I ended up at probably a better title would have been Making the Hard Decisions. And then as I was sitting in my office this morning and was just kind of going over the, the sermon a little bit before I came in, uh, I remembered, again, that Anthony was giving his testimony. And after talking to him a couple of times as he worked through this, the hard decision that this was, and I just I couldn't believe how God had worked those two things out. Um, uh, I, again, I couldn't believe it. I don't know why. I'm dumb, mainly, and slow. Uh, but uh, that was what God did. So turn this morning to Acts chapter 6. We're going to start in verse, uh, actually we're going to start in verse 8, not verse 10. That won't hurt you too bad. The entire passage will not be on the screen this morning. So let me encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to uh, reach in the, the pew in front of you and pull one out and follow along with us. Acts Chapter 6, verse 10 is where we're going to start. We're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 7. I'm not going to begin this morning by reading it uh, all like I normally do. I'll uh, uh, read a, a portion of it here in a minute and when we get started. But the reality is, decisions are hard. I, I, whether you're standing at the freezer case at Walmart trying to decide on cookie two-step bluebell ice cream or just straight cookies and cream or bride's cake or if I want to make my wife happy millennium crunch that's a hard decision I got some amens thank you I see those hands I don't care what one of our church members might think about nasty bluebell ice cream as she might have put on Facebook this week. She's wrong, and Jesus will talk to her about that. It's, it's a hard decision to stand there, and, and that's, that is extremely minor, isn't it? I mean, it's, for me, it's which ice cream do I want to make me fatter? That's really the decision I'm making. I'm probably going to end up, to be honest, buying all four. Um, and then choosing at home, again, a difficult decision, though. Some are trivial, right? Some decisions are hard. And, and some decisions are life-changing. And some decisions are eternity-changing. Uh, I have a story for you this morning about a man, a man named Bill Waller Sr. Now, very few of you know who Bill Waller Sr. is. Uh, a handful of you do. Bill Waller would be uh, early 90s now if he were still alive. Uh, he was born around 1920. Uh, I guess that'd make him late 90s, right? If, if I'm, don't ever trust me for math. Um, I believe he was born in the late 20s then. Um, he uh, was born in Oklahoma, went to college at Oklahoma State. He, when I knew him, he stood about four and a half feet tall. Uh, he was older and kind of humped over. At his tallest, he might have been five, six. 
uh, 5'7". He was not a big man at all, yet he played basketball for Oklahoma State back in, this would probably put it in the late 30s, early 40s. He played for them in college. He got a degree in uh, accounting or uh, a business degree and moved soon thereafter to Wichita, Kansas, worked for a company for a while, and got to where, uh, got to the point in the probably the late 50s or so where they were going to computerize their accounting process. Well, he was in charge of accounting for this company, and they wanted him to, to do that. Now, computerize, of course, the time we're talking, I mean, punch cards. Right? I have no idea how those work. But it did at, at that time. That was the newest technology. And, and he, they wanted him to implement this new technology for this little company in Wichita, Kansas. He was called into his boss's office. They said, we want you to do this. And, and he said, okay. Uh, and they said, for your increased work, we'll give you two more weeks of vacation. Now, the other thing you need to know about Bill Waller Sr. is his temper fuse is about that long. And he tended, as I have understood it, to speak before he thought. And so he told them what they could do with their two weeks of vacation, quit on the spot, and walked out. Got another job at another company, uh, did fine all those years, um, retired, raised a family, all that stuff. The little company he worked for, you might have heard of, uh, they're a small uh, um, airplane manufacturer called Boeing. Very likely, and I'm telling you this story as I heard him tell it, because this is Etta's grandfather. Very likely, if he had stuck around, he would have been their chief information officer probably in a number of years. I mean, he was going to be the ground floor uh, on, on, on technology in Boeing. And he got mad because they didn't give him a raise. They only gave him two weeks of vacation, and he walked out, and he regretted that ever since, as he told me. The sad thing is, he did it a few years later to similar company. I mean, he didn't really learn from it until it was way too late. It wasn't anything as major as Boeing, but he, he had hard decisions to make, and he made those decisions based on emotion and not thought, and, and on uh, not incomplete information, not bad information, just he didn't like the information he had received. Well, this morning we're going to look at Stephen, who had a decision to make. Was he going to stand up for his faith? Was he going to uh, stand on what he believed, trust the Lord that, that he said he served? And we're going to look at Israel and, and see uh, the decision that they had to make because Stephen's response is going to go back a long time in history when asked a question by the Sanhedrin. At the end of today's message, you will have to make a decision, every one of you, and, and it will be a hard decision for most of you. For, I would say for all of us, actually, but for some of you, it will be particularly difficult. The story begins, uh, as Scripture tells us, 
in chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll read through uh, the, the first part of verse 1 of chapter 7. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Are these things true? The high priest asked. Well, let's, let's notice some characteristics of Stephen. Uh, he is one of the seven that were chosen that we talked about last week to, to serve the, uh, the, the, the benevolence to folks who needed help in the community, in the church, uh, particularly due to, you remember, the, the murmuring in the church and the, the need that was there as well. But it says, we read back and we told, see that uh, Peter said, "...choose from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom." And then we come down a little bit and we see that Scripture describes Stephen as full of grace and power. Now, grace here is, is not uh, he was a good dancer, he had, he had grace, or he was polite, though uh, he probably was. But this is grace that is the enabling power of God. He, he had the grace of God on him and it showed in his life and in his words and in his actions. And he was full of it, full of grace, full of the enabling power of God, but he was full of the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this power is the visible result of God's indwelling Holy Spirit. And Stephen was full of it, full of this. And remember who this guy is. Of course, Peter said to, to pick out someone with these characteristics, but remember what they were merely picked for. They were merely enlisted to help the Benevolence Committee. That's really all they were. I'm not even sure they were the Benevolence Committee. They were just the Benevolence Committee helpers. They were the ones that got the phone call. Hey, we have some uh, food or some money that needs to go to uh, Widow Parker over here. We've got some food and money that needs to go to Widow Jones over here. That, and, and Stephen was one of the ones that took that. He was merely a servant. Yet look at what he could do when he had chosen correctly whom to serve. He was performing miracles, Scripture says, great wonders and signs among the people. He was healing people. He was doing things that had people in awe. They were aghast at what this... I mean, if they thought Peter the fisherman was a nobody, who was this guy? He wasn't one of the original 12 as far as anybody knew. He was just chosen to take money to, and food to folks' houses. And here he is performing miracles. When, as we get to the, through this passage, uh, he's before the Sanhedrin, the ruling court, he preaches a sermon, a great sermon. As a matter of fact, the longest 
one uh, 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 spoken passage in Acts is this Stephen who's on the Benevolence Committee. We see him then, I'll give away some of the ending, dying for his faith. The Benevolence Committee member dying for his faith. I'm, I'm, I'm harping on that Benevolence Committee member, folks, because we, we think of, sure, the pastor's supposed to die for his faith, right? And maybe the, the other ministers, and then, then the, the, the deacons, right? Yeah, we'll put them in front. Um, and then, you know, oh, leadership, strong, the, the big leadership people. And, but when you get down to the ones that just helped the committee, they should be safe. Nobody will hear about them. And instead, we see in Scripture, he's the first Christian martyr. Not Peter, not James, not John the helper to the Benevolence Committee. Merely, right? Well, there's no merely in the kingdom of God. When God calls you, when God puts you in a position, you're not merely anything. You are a servant to do God's work and God's will. So we see these characteristics of Stephen as we look through this passage right here at the beginning and later on. We need to also notice some characteristics of his attackers Scripture tells us they were members of the Freedmen's Synagogue. These were Hellenistic Jews. Very likely they were ancestors of Jews that were enslaved back in the time of Ptolemy around 63 B.C. or so. And then were, as, as children they were freed. Uh, they were probably, uh, well clearly they were from other parts of the, the, the world. They were Hellenistic Jews. They were what we had talked about last week that wasn't the group that wasn't getting what they needed. And so uh, the church expanded their ministry and, and, and called Stephen and six others to reach these people. And here they are, the unbelieving Hellenistic Jews, now turning against one of their own because these were likely Stephen's people. This might have even been his synagogue. It's very possible, him being a Hellenistic Jew. If you look at some of the places they're from, uh, the, uh, from Cyrenians, they were Cyrenians and Alexandrians. That's in North Africa. Simon the Cyrene, the uh, fellow who carried the cross for Jesus, would not have been in this group, but he was from uh, Cyrene. Uh, from Cyrene. Uh, and then you have from Cilicia and Asia, north and east of Israel. Very possibly Saul could have been a part of this group because Saul was from Tarsus and Tarsus is a city in Cilicia. Do you see, if nothing else, you're thinking that's a kind of a useless fact, Michael. It's not. Look at how Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, wove this story so that he's beginning to pull in bits and pieces that look like kind of random threads but by the end, by the time he gets to the end, he's going to have this tapestry that when you look back, you see how these pieces became part of the whole. Well, he's getting us ready to introduce a certain person. We see that uh, the, the, the Freedman Synagogue, these, these attackers of Stephen, were powerless in God's presence. They began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom we, he was speaking. See, Stephen was supernaturally given the words when something came up. 
When, when he was attacked, when he was persecuted, when he stood before the courts, the Holy Spirit gave him the words. That is a direct promise from the mouth of Jesus to his disciples that they would be able to do that despite their lack of education, despite the relatively short time they had spent with him. They would be called to the carpet and they would be able to give responses because of the Holy Spirit within them, the helper that he would send them. And here we see Stephen, the third time we've seen this happen now in our short little journey through Acts here, and we see it not from a disciple, not from one of the big 12, but the helper to the Benevolence Committee. And we see then uh, that these folks as well as being powerless in God's presence, we see that when they could not stand up against his wisdom, they could not stand up against the Lord, they resorted to lies, gossip, and slander. Uh, verses 11 through uh, 14, 15 there. Uh, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people. They presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against the holy place. The, the interesting word is that they secretly persuaded some men to say, it, it, it's not as much as they were going to people and saying, all right, here, I need you to go to the court and say these things about Stephen. It was more along the lines of, did you hear what Stephen said the other day? Yeah. Was he talking about destroying the temple? Well, I didn't. Well, he did something. I think he did. I think that's what he said. You know, I think you're right. I know I'm right. And now they're stirring up a crowd. It's not hard to do. It happens all the time. When they can't get their way, when these, when these groups could not get their way, this group of, of, uh, from the Freedmen Synagogue, they began to, uh, when they couldn't get their way with the truth, when they couldn't get their way with one-on-one -on -one conversations, they resorted to evil schemes. Well, we're going to stir up something back here because what we thought would work didn't. The truth wasn't, uh, wasn't harsh enough. Let's make something up so we can stir up trouble against this guy. They used hint and suggestion. They used misrepresentation of who he was, who he worshipped, and what he said in order to get that way, uh, to get their way, rather. And it worked. So they gather him up, they uh, seize him, it says, and they took him to the Sanhedrin, and that's when the witnesses showed up and said all these things. They'll stand up and say it in front of people, but it was obvious and it was known that they were lying. So Stephen then has the opportunity to answer his charges. This court was not a capital punishment hearing. This was an evidence-gathering hearing. They were there to question Stephen, question the witnesses, and then decide what had to be done. This is important to understand as we move forward. So Stephen answers the charges here with an historically-based sermon. And I, now I'm going to read the entire sermon to you that he preached, that the answer that he gave, starting in verse 2 of chapter 7. Brothers and fathers, he replied, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, leave your country and relatives and come to the land that I will show you. 
Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had, get, had him moved to this land in which you are now living. He didn't give him an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. But he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them for 400 years. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God said. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. And so he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole, his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed that people would understand that God had given them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And he was approaching to look, as he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. 
Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. God turned away and gave them up to worship the stars of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephon, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle, the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. Is that me? Is that it? We pause this. Sounds fine now. Is that is the battery that's going? Testing. Testing. Our ancestors, I'm in verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle, the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will be my resting place? Did not my hands make, them all, make all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it. And that was his sermon. See, the issue here, I mean, he, he began by, God, by honoring Abraham and reminding them of the promise and the covenant. He did that in verses 2 through 8, showing them, hey, I, I know our history. It is our history. I mean, he begins by saying, my brothers and fathers, and he talks about our ancestors, our ancestors, our ancestors. This is our history, a shared history. We serve the same God, he's saying, but the issue was, and this is what he's pointing out, that Israel had never recognized her saviors. If you go back and you read that again this week, look at rejection after rejection of their saviors. We're going to talk about it a little bit now. First rejection he talks about, Joseph was betrayed. In verses 9 through 16 of chapter 7, patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt. But God raised him up as a savior. 
for his family. A few years later, when the famine was in the land of Egypt, or actually in the land of the whole known world at the time, uh, Joseph was raised up and prepared to be used by God to save his people. Rejected by his family, but used by God to save them. Then Stephen talks about Moses and how he was repeatedly rejected and spends most of his time talking about him, verses 17 through 43. First, uh, when actually you, I, you can go back even further than I have on the screen, he was rejected as a baby. He was not because his parents wanted to, but because of what was going on at the time. He was put out, but he was saved. He was rescued. Then, as he grew older, he avenged a mistreated Hebrew. Stephen talks about that in verses 25 and 26. They, he was being mistreated by an Egyptian, so Moses kills the Egyptian. And they respond uh, negatively. He tells them the next day, hey, don't fight among yourselves. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill us too? They missed their opportunity. We know God is sovereign, right? We know God had something else planned that wasn't the way he was going to rescue uh, them at the time. But God uses, takes the hardness of our hearts and uses it for his glory. So the people had the opportunity, but they hardened their heart and missed the Savior. And as Stephen says... Uh, he assumed, Moses assumed those people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they didn't. Later on in verse 37, he's telling the people that, uh, Stephen points out that he told the people, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your, among your brothers and sisters. And he was misunderstood. The people, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Stephen's day would have said, well, that was Joshua. But Joshua was there. Joshua could have been, but wasn't appointed that prophet. They, everybody knew, then knew Moses is talking about someone else. Looking back at Scripture, they knew that as well. And they misunderstood they did not see that that other prophet was Jesus. Moses was rejected when the Israelites longed for Egypt. Verse 39, Stephen talks about it. Our, un our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They would have rather had slavery than freedom that didn't look like the freedom that they wanted. And so they turned against Moses. Now, God tells them later on, Moses, it's not you they rejected, it's me. But they rejected his Savior. They rejected, ultimately, the rejection was of God. But they rejected the Savior that God had sent. Moses was rejected when the Israelites, in the next verse, verses 40 through 43, built a golden calf. Moses, I don't know where Moses is, and God doesn't seem like he's around. Let's make our own gods. We reject Moses. And his God. Four times, just in Stephen's sermon, he talks about really five times the, the people rejected Moses. Stephen's not done. Stephen keeps going. He moves on from Moses to, to the temple, first to the tabernacle, then the temple. He talks about how Moses was given the plans for the tabernacle, told how to do it. And when Solomon, David first came up with the idea of building a permanent house, and Solomon was the one that actually did it. And uh, Stephen tells him, 
through the book of Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 66, is his quote here in verse 49. Heaven is my throne, God says. The earth is my footstool. I don't need a house. A house can't contain me. See, excuse me, Israel had, had taken this tool that was meant to facilitate the means, and they took it as the end. Right? We, we, we have a, a tool that's just a means to an end. Well, they took that tool that was supposed to be a means to worship God, and they made the temple God. They made the temple more important than it was. It was where God would dwell for them to worship, but it wasn't where God lived. We go back through the Old Testament. This should have been clear to the people who knew the Old Testament best. And God was always working outside of Israel, doing things in other countries, having followers from other places come in. Israel put their hope in these wrong things. God is not bound by location, building, or tradition. And then they did the same thing with Jesus, verses 51 through 53. You rejected the prophets then. You rejected the saviors that God sent you over and over and over until you went into exile with the Babylonians. And you would think, Stephen's saying, you would think you'd get it by now. And yet you still reject the Savior that God sent you. So much so that you are the murderers and betrayers of Jesus, of the righteous one, of the most recent and ultimate Savior that God is going to send you. And then they were mad. Verse 54, uh, it says that when they heard these things, they were enraged. And, and this uh, word has already been used. We used it a couple of weeks ago, or Luke did a couple of weeks ago, in the second courtroom appearance of all the apostles. first one was Peter and James. The second one was all the apostles. And the, the members there were enraged. And we learned that that word meant split in two. They were so angry. It was, it was like the Hulk coming out of them. They were so, so mad, except this, he didn't turn green and grow. The, he grew out of the skin, kind of. They were, they were furious about what was going on. They gnashed their teeth at him. And then Stephen put the last nail in his own coffin. Full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There are all kinds of interpretations of what it means that Jesus was standing. He should have been sitting. That, that would have been the, the rightful place of the, king, uh, of, uh, uh, of the king's son to sit. But he was standing, so it means something. A couple of things we can see here. Those that accept him, Jesus, like Stephen did, will be judged. Jesus is standing in judgment. And Stephen, or those who accept Jesus like Stephen did, will be judged righteous. Those that reject Jesus, like Israel did, they will be judged guilty. Jesus stands in judgment to judge 
his followers, those who claim his name, those who don't claim his name. And that's what he's standing to do. And the nail in the coffin for Stephen was that he saw Jesus and God as equals. Which is exactly what Jesus said when he was on earth. And they killed him for it. They were enraged. No longer was this a trial to gather evidence. This was a mob lynching. They were going to have their justice because how dare he say that Jesus is equal with God. They killed him for equating Jesus and God and Judaism and Christianity split. Till now, they had been the same stream. They were witnessing in the synagogues. They were going to the temple. And Christianity and Judaism were on the same path. And Christianity was pulling believers and converts from Judaism. But there was no split in the two. Now they diverge. And from here on out, no longer, as this series has been, the church and the community, this will be the church and the world. The rest of Acts from here on out will be the story of how the gospel spread. And then if we read chapter 8, verse 1, well, you see his, his response to the stoning, first of all. They dragged him out of the city, verse 58, began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, of Cilicia, probably Hellenistic in a lot of ways one of Stephen's own. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But in fact, without repentance, that sin was held against them. Except for Saul, who repented. But that's down the road, because verse 8 Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Saul agreed with the killing. And with those two sentences, verse 58, lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Luke introduces this thread to the tapestry of the greatest missionary that's ever been known. And he introduces him as being an enemy of Jesus. Oh, there's a lot of sermon there. There's actually a lot of sermon in this sermon, and we're not getting to that today. But what you need to see from this sermon is that you now have a decision to make. Look at the decisions that were made throughout this sermon. Stephen recounts the history of Israel where they decided not to follow their Savior, Joseph, not to believe him. They, he recounted multiple times where Moses was rejected as the savior of Israel as they came out of Egypt. So much so that they worshipped other gods and ended up in exile. We see the decision not to see the temple as a place of worship, but a place to worship. Somehow contained God. Maybe the original idea of God in a box. That temple and it became what they worshipped instead of the God who told them to worship him there. We see those decisions all the way up to the rejection of the righteous one, the Savior that God sent to his people. We see Stephen's decision to stand for the faith 
even in the face of death. Now you have a decision to make. Believer, will you be faithful and stand up to death? Will you be faithful whether it's death or not? Will you be faithful when it's leaving a church home that's been your church home for a number of years? Will you be faithful when God is calling you to step out in faith, to do something that is hard, something that when you begin to realize where God's going, you stop praying and say, oh, I ain't going to talk to you no more. And then he gets you back and says, no, you, yeah, you are, and you're going to listen. And you do it. Will you be faithful? It could mean death. Not necessarily, but it still requires your faithfulness. Will you, believer, be strong in the Spirit? Will you be prepared in and out of season to give an answer? Will you be bold in your proclamation like Stephen was to tell people who could kill him at that moment, you are the betrayers and the murderers of the righteous one? Will you be bold in the faith? Will you be steadfast in the path that God has set before you? When he calls you to be the helper to the benevolence committee, will you know that that is no small job in the kingdom of God? Because there is no small job in the kingdom of God. I must be faithful to him and to what he has called me to. Will you be steadfast in that path? Believer, check your heart. Where is it? Where is it? What are you doing? What are you saying? What decision have you made and what decision do you need to make? That's to the believers. Unbeliever, do not reject your Savior. Do not be like the unfaithful in the wilderness. Do not be like the, 12, the, the 11 brothers of Joseph who rejected him. Do not be like the ones that see their salvation but think, well, this freedom doesn't look like the freedom I want, so I'm going to reject this, and I want to go back to the slavery of my sin. Don't do that. This morning, do not miss the persistent drawing of the Holy Spirit. He is drawing you this morning. If you're hearing this message, He's drawing you. He's calling you. He is asking you. He is pulling you toward Him. Don't, like the Israelites, put your hope in the wrong things. They pushed, uh, they worshipped a building. They put so much influence, emphasis on the building, they missed when God was doing something different, when he was doing a new thing, as the Scripture tells us, as he was telling us to sing a new song, as the Scripture tells us. They were putting their hope in what had been, in their traditions, and in what they wanted salvation to come from, not where salvation actually came from. Unbeliever, this morning, do not put your hope in yourself. Do not put your hope in church attendance or membership or good works or your donations of time or money or a God of your own making, which we do daily when we reject Christ and say, I can save myself some other way. You might as well form a golden calf and put it in your living room because you are worshiping something besides the one, the righteous one, the Savior that God sent to save you. So this morning, do not reject your Savior, unbeliever. Understand that you need salvation. That salvation is due, is necessary from God because God is holy and just. He will judge sin. It's a new battery, so I don't know what it is now. He will judge sin. And we are willfully fallen and destined for everlasting torment and judgment. 
going to be judged because of our sin. We cannot get out of that. We cannot get away from it. But Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who took our place and our sin on the cross, died for you. And he rose three days later to prove his victory over death and sin. And he calls you, the Holy Spirit draws you this morning to repent of your sin, to place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him and living for him. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're that unbeliever I'm talking to. And this is your message. Do not reject your Savior. This is the most important decision you will ever make. Make the decision for Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you sent us witnesses and prophets and uh, martyrs and testimonies in your word to show us over and over that how we as believers can, can get off track, how we can, can cannot walk in the spirit as, as we should. Lord, you've shown us how, examples of how we can. It, it's, it's, it's proven to us we can be one with you and we can be bold in our proclamation and we can be steadfast in the path you set before us and we can make even those difficult decisions carefully, prayerfully, and according to your will. God, thank you for that, but thank you also for the message that your salvation is offered daily, minutely. Lord, it's there for us, and you draw us. Lord, let us not make the decision to reject it again. God, I pray for those here who are listening to this, that they've never trusted you, Jesus Christ, your Son, as, as their Savior. They will do that today. They will turn their hearts over to you. They will repent of their sins and follow you. Lord, we pray for your hand on every person this morning. Every one of us has a decision to make, Lord. I pray we would make that decision for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So don't reject your Savior. Don't resist the Holy Spirit this morning. Maybe you need to accept Christ. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've trusted Jesus, but you need to follow in obedience. Maybe you need, as a believer, to lead a life of holiness. There are some things that you need to give up and walk away from, and you need to make a, a physical act out of that this morning by coming to the prayer rails and laying them at the foot of the cross. Maybe you need to uh, respond to ministry or missions calling. Maybe you need to join our church. You've been visiting a while, but it's time to be a part of this family, and you want to do that. I don't know what your decision is, but as we stand and sing this morning, I will be over here to my left, standing in this corner. Jordan will be to my right, and you come and you pray with us if that's what you would like. Have us pray for you if that's what you would like, or come to these rails and pray on your own. But whatever it is, you, as we stand and sing, you do business with God. Let's worship him.